Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, our year-end tips as you think about your financial planning. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka who at the moment that you're listening to this is somewhere off in the world on vacation. But today he's here with me through the magic of podcasting. Dan, good to see you, bud. That's right. Good to see you too. It is time for our year-end checklist. As financial planners, we love a year-end checklist. These are all over the internet. Most of them are too simple. And in our typical fashion, we're going to bat around some ideas and talk about what makes sense and what doesn't make sense as you consider your finances here at the end of 2022, which has been a whirlwind in many ways. Dan, what is your first year-end tip for people as they're thinking about their finances? So my first tip, or at least the first thing we want to check into, is tax loss harvesting, or as we've noted before, tax gain harvesting. That's always where we get people, Dan. Everybody talks about tax loss harvesting. Not enough people talking about tax gain harvesting and when that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So tax loss harvesting, if you need a refresher, is capturing losses in your investment portfolio that you can either use to offset those elusive gains that you may have had in 2022. And if, if you do, I'd love to know where you found those. Or you can actually use certain amount of losses to offset ordinary income. So that's up to $3,000 typically a year. Uh, so you can harvest some gains to use that to offset your income. So you might be hunting for losses in your portfolio where you can sell, capture those losses. There are certain rules about when and what you can reinvest in, but you can put those funds back to work later. It's basically a 30-day waiting period. You can't have bought the security for 30 days prior or 30 days after in another account. We've talked about this a few times, so we won't go super deep on the rules of tax loss harvesting, but that is called the wash sale rule. You'll want to be careful of it if that's what you're doing. I think the more interesting thing to talk about is when tax gain harvesting makes sense, because I think that is the less talked about version of this. Now, certainly, if you've got $3,000 of taxable losses in an account, and you've got a high income tax rate, offsetting some of that makes sense. But when does taking a gain make sense for you, Dan? I will sing this song until the end of the world, but there is a 0% capital gain tax bracket where if you have under a certain amount of taxable income, you pay 0% on taxable capital gains. That's incredible. So if you have gains, why not capture those gains? Pay your 0% tax and put that money back to work for yourself. You might find yourself in this scenario in a couple of different ways. Perhaps you are you had a gap in employment during a year and find yourself with low income. Uh, maybe you're fresh into retirement and haven't turned on any outside income streams and you're just pulling from your portfolio. So rather than let those gains continue to sit there and maybe you fall, you get income down the road that's going to push you into a higher bracket. 
and will find yourself having to pay tax on those gains later, just pay the 0% now. But you need to make sure that you qualify for that. I'll give you another example, Dan. Uh, And this happened, came up pretty recently in our practice. It wasn't my client, but this is a situation we saw. It is a pending marriage. This is an engaged person that themselves is currently in, I think, the 22% uh, federal tax bracket, making good money. Their fiance is in a much higher tax bracket. And when they get married, their capital gains rate is going to go up. If you are north of $250,000 at the household level, you start to bump into the net investment income tax. That is a 3.8% surtax that goes on top of the capital gains rates when your household income exceeds $250,000. For very high income earners, you could also bump into the 20% capital gains rate, which really means 23.8 when you count that net investment income tax. Because of that marriage, it makes sense in some cases to take gains now because you're going to recognize them at 15%, where next year, in all likelihood, unless something crazy happens in the way the law is written, they would be paying 18 plus percent on those capital gains taxes. So that's a situation where we can very easily foresee an increase in their tax rate not necessarily because the rates themselves are going up, but because their situation is changing. So if you've got that situation going on, if you are engaged to a high-income earner, first of all, congratulations. That sounds fantastic. Good for you. But that increase in your capital gains rate might be another reason that you would want to recognize some gains this year rather than pushing that off into the future. That net investment income tax is a sneaky one because you think of capital gains tax rates as three separate brackets. There's 0%, 15%, 20%. But because of that net investment income tax, you're really effectively paying more brackets than that. You have that 18.8% tax that um, that Ross mentioned, which is that 3.8 on top of the 15. So don't get hit with a surprise tax just to set the record straight on when that kicks in. For most people, if you're filing single, the threshold amount for net investment income tax is income above $200,000. For married filing jointly, it's $250,000. So, um, you know, there's a lot of income that can fall under that bracket and qualify for that extra bonus to the IRS. Yeah. So I thought that was a really interesting planning situation that came up um, and is absolutely a reason to harvest gains. But Dan, you nailed the main one, which is that 0% bracket. Now, a word of caution, if you are in this bucket and you're going to do this, The 0% that we are talking about, that is at the federal level. You may still have some taxes due at the state level on a capital gain. Um, We've got a modeling software that we use to model this stuff. And uh, this exact strategy was one that I was talking about with with a client where we were looking at how much can we recognize in gains without really creating a tax burden. And we were able to stay at that 0% bracket on the federal side but not necessarily able to stay at 0% on the state side. It still makes sense. So I don't want to say that that defies the logic of what we're talking about here, but you may have some taxes due. I'm always a fan of just doing an estimated payment if I know that I'm creating a taxable gain, either to the federal government or to the state. I don't like having that surprise come back up in the springtime when I wasn't paying attention to it. So if you're 
knowingly recognizing a gain, talk with your tax preparer. They may not uh, require that you do this, but I think it's often a good idea to make an estimated payment just to get out in front of it so that you don't have that bill come due when you're not thinking about the transaction. Um, so that's my other uh, little plug that I'll put in there because I think estimated payments are are underutilized, especially when people are dealing with a capital gain situation. There's nothing I hate more than estimated payments. It's my least favorite activity. Really? I mean, I don't like making the payments, but I like not having huge surprises at the end of the tax year. I, I'm such a dork about this. I take like deep pride in getting as close as possible to like actually knowing my real tax liability. Which admittedly, with like what we do, having you know self-employed income and side hustle income, and then like investment stuff that gets kicked off, it's kind of tough. If I can get that close on my estimate and be as as close as possible, so I don't owe much and I don't get a huge refund, that makes me really happy tax-wise. If you were successful, it becomes a lot less painful because your first quarterly estimate is due at the same time, basically, as your federal tax return. So if you're making a a payment because you underpaid the previous year and now magically have a quarterly payment due, if you're not ready for that, that can can cause some pressure on the cash flow. Yep. Well, let's talk about one of our other items, and we're a little late in the year for this particular one, but this is a good time to adjust your withholding either for the very end of the year or for next year. Now, if you think that you're going to owe taxes in 2022, one of the things that you can do if you still have paychecks left is ask your payroll to add withholding and take more out of your you know, final check or two for the year of 2022. The reason you would do that is the IRS expects you to make tax payments throughout the course of a year. And they generally want that income lined up with when you make the payments. So if you made a bunch of income in the first quarter and didn't make an estimated payment, you can be penalized for that. On withholding, they assume that that gets spread across the year regardless of when you did the withholding. So if you are in a situation where you need to boost your tax withholding to make it look like and appear like to the IRS that you paid taxes throughout spread across the year you can bump your withholding way up on that final paycheck and basically dig back out of that sort of situation. Obviously, the other thing we're talking about here is if you haven't gotten your tax withholding correct and you're in a situation where you're regularly owing and all sorts of stuff there, uh, this is a good time to review that and get yourself set up for next year so that your withholding is where it should be so that you don't have big surprises. Also talking about withholdings, one thing that you need to do before calendar year end is if you were looking to make extra retirement contributions to your 401k, to your employer-sponsored plan, uh, the deadline is December 31st, 2022. You need to get that in before that. However, if you are going to make a contribution to something like a traditional IRA, Roth IRA, or a SEP, you have a little more time. So you're not under the gun. Uh, You have until April 15th traditionally to do that. That end of the year also matters for getting a 401k set up, right? Is that you need to have it done before the end of the year if you're going to do a 401k for your company, correct? Uh, That's my understanding, yes. Okay. I know that because we're setting one up right now. Craftwork Capital moving up in the world. We are becoming a real company. So we're going to have our own 401k soon. That's our, our fun news for the end of the year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. Actually, I learned that in the state of Maryland, I learned this recently, uh, so that we would be compliant companies have to provide an employer-sponsored retirement plan to their team if they use any payroll provider 
which is, I feel like, a pretty low bar to meet. Uh, and there was some employee number uh, requirement to it, even if you don't use an employee, a, a payroll provider. So uh, for the brewery, we're in the process of getting that set up as well. So I am learning a lot about 401k implementation from the side of being the 401k customer. Oh, that's fun stuff, Dan. All great. Things that we get to help people with all the time. Uh, now, I will mention that while making contributions to an IRA can be deferred until April 15th, if you were looking to do a Roth conversion, that is a December 31st deadline. So if you find that it makes sense to do a Roth conversion, the clock is ticking. Yeah, so there's a bunch of like competing push-pull things that we're talking about here because next year, the tax brackets all shift. Can we talk about that, Dan? How much of a shift are we going to see in terms of where people's income starts to get recognized at different rates? Yeah, it's pretty meaningful. And in the tax community, I'm hearing a lot about pushing income to 2023 because one of the impacts of higher inflation is that they have adjusted tax brackets accordingly to make sure that people you know, aren't seeing more of their discretionary spend eaten up by taxes. This starts with the standard deduction. So for single filers, the standard deduction is increasing $900 for 2023, which is meaningful. So it's going to be 13850 And so on top of that, tax brackets are being inflated. So you can recognize more income at lower tax brackets than you could this year, for example. So just to pick one as a benchmark, previously, the 22% tax bracket for single filers started at $41,775. Next year for 2023, the 22% tax bracket is going to start at $44,725. So that's $3,000 more that you can recognize at lower tax brackets in that scenario. So um, if you have a bonus that you have choice on when it can get paid out, all else remaining equal, you are going to pay less taxes on that by pushing that into next year than by realizing it this year. So that's all contrary to wanting to do a Roth conversion. A Roth conversion, what we think of there is accelerating income. So that would mean that if we had a low income year in 2022 for any reason, or if we are trying to take advantage of a low tax bracket this year, that's really dragging income forward, not pushing it off into 2023. Again, we're talking about all this stuff because it's super, super personal and unique. But if you are trying to get money out of a pre-tax bucket and you are currently in an attractive tax rate to do so, this is the time of year to be thinking about it. You know, Our Roth conversion questions are always around, do we have good forward-looking understanding of our current income, our future income, and then what sort of a tax problem is looming out there, which for most folks, especially folks that are entering or near retirement, required minimum distributions. So still at 72 for RMDs. We haven't seen any adjustment with like Secure 2.0, which has been proposed. But when we say that there's kind of a tax time bomb out there, that's normally it because you've got a bunch of things that stack on top of each other. By that point, your spending is probably starting to decline, maybe a little bit. You've got Social Security raging, full income on Social Security at that point, and then your IRAs start forcing money and spitting that out at you in a taxable way. So we're often trying to avoid that with the strategy of doing Roth conversion. So those things are what we're looking at for each client when we're saying, should we be doing this? Is what's our tax rate look like? Is next year the better opportunity for it? 
maybe now that we've got more room in each one of those brackets. Yeah. And to do that, you really need to forecast your income well, which is hard to do, uh, especially if you have variable income through self-employment or you know you work on commission. Yeah. I mean, if you're in a very cyclical industry, if you're doing real estate sales or, or something like that, and you're expecting a slowdown further into 2023, it's kind of an interesting time for for planning, right? I mean, if you're looking at bigger gaps in terms of what you can do tax planning wise, and then potentially a slowdown, I think 2023 could be a really big tax year for planning or planning year for taxes is, is the better way to put that. Absolutely. I agree. One thing that's on my mind that I think should be on some of your minds as well as we approach the end of the year is many of you are in or just past open enrollment. If you have made any flexible spending account uh, contributions, it's possible that you need to spend that money by the end of the year, depending on how your workplace is set up. Use it or lose it, baby. Use it or lose it. So see what you've done this year. Make sure you've depleted what you need to if, in fact, your deadline is December 31st, and then uh, evaluate accordingly for next year. All right. The other thing, and this feels like we're just going to do this show every year, which I really appreciate. I-bonds time, baby. Uh, We talked last year about I-bonds with the inflation rate being elevated. That meant that you could basically get risk-free or as close to risk-free as we imagine you can ever be, federally insured treasury bonds at the rate of inflation. So this year, they've been paying out at 9 plus percent now adjusting down to a little bit below 7%. But the I-bond has just been improved. So if you missed the boat last year, you're actually getting a better product on the one that you could buy this year or into 2023. The I-bond calculation is generally a base rate and then the inflation rate on top of it. So you can think of those as stacking. In the ones, if you bought it last year, that base rate was zero. You didn't get any base rate. So if the inflation rate was zero, effectively, you would get nothing in terms of appreciation on that bond. That has changed. Now the base rate is 0.4 plus the inflation rate. Now 0.4 may not sound like a massive difference, right? Four tenths of a percent. But over time, the bonds that are being issued today are going to eclipse the ones that were issued last year. Um, they will just completely surpass it because of that additional 40 basis points, which does add up over time. So if you missed it last year, still a good time to be thinking about I-bonds for any money that you don't need. I'm going to say really in the next 15 months, but really I think it should be more long-term savings or kind of pure true cash reserve that like maybe you would need access to it, but not foreseeably in the next uh, year or so. Right. And Roth says 15 months because you have to hold the funds for a year in the product. And then you also have a three-month interest penalty if you redeem the bonds before you've held them for five years. So it's almost like a CD with a one-year minimum holding period uh, and I guess a five-year CD where you have a penalty for for pulling money out early. Yeah. I, I think of it as kind of like the long-term icebox of a cash reserve. I, I, and and I did buy these last year, and I, like I'm continuing to evaluate how I think about this positioning because it's really not short term money for me, um, but it's also not an emergency cash reserve, right? It's not super liquid in the sense that I can go get the money today. I'm about at that year point on the first ones that I bought. I'm probably a few weeks away, but for me, I think of it as longer term cash reserve money or maybe that second tier cash reserve. 
But I, if you're going to do this and you're trying to get a slug invested in 2022 and then maybe another in 2023, I just want to caution people not to wait until the final day, right? If you process the transaction on the 31st, it does not clear immediately with the treasury.gov website. So be a little ahead of this. If you're planning to do I-bonds for this calendar year, I would say give yourself a minimum of a week, but more likely just go ahead and get that done. And if you haven't had any before, there are also two experiences for purchasing these things. So when they verify your identity, for some people, you type in your name and in your, your information and the website's like, great, this is Ross, of course. Here, buy, buy your I-bonds. But if you're Daniel, they go, wait a second. Something doesn't sound right. I'm going to need you to head on over to a bank and get a special medallion stamp before I let you into our system here. So if that is you, if you are like me, it will not be a matter of days. You need to complete a paper form and send it in for processing. And we are talking weeks. So uh, chop, chop, get to it. Yeah, that sucks. Uh, That's a really bad experience. I only kind of laugh at that because I feel like you and I trade where we experience our hassles. I have hassles on everything related to real estate. No matter whether I am a renter or a purchaser of the home, things are destined to go bad for me when it comes to real estate. You have these types of problems. I do. Uh, That's all right. We overcome. We shall overcome our problems. So the final one on my list, Dan, was charitable giving. Um, I think this is a great time of year. And uh, for, for anybody that's thinking about charitable giving, if you've got appreciated stocks in your portfolio, that is more powerful than giving cash. We'll, we'll beat that drum as many times as we need to. But if you have stocks that have gone up in your portfolio, you can give the same dollar amount that you are already going to give. So if you were going to give 1000 bucks to Salvation Army, you can give it from appreciated stock, but you also eliminate the gain when you do it that way. You can just take that same cash you were going to give, put it right back into your brokerage account, and buy the exact same thing over again with a new higher cost basis. That's the type of cost basis you want, is a new one and a higher one. So similar to our tax gain harvesting or tax loss harvesting, depending on which side of that you end up on, this is kind of the same idea. You can eliminate a gain for free on money that you are already planning to give away. So if you're going to do any charitable giving, take a look at your brokerage account before you do it. And the charity is agnostic as to how you do it because they can sell the security and they don't pay taxes because they are exempt as a nonprofit. And having worked with a lot of smaller nonprofits, almost everyone is set up to accept this kind of gift. So maybe they don't advertise it. Maybe it's not on the website very, very clearly. But if you ask them, it's likely that they already have a mechanism in place to take whatever stocks you wanted to send them. The other place that you can go with that money, if you plan on giving, but you aren't sure where you're going to give yet, is of course a donor advised fund. Another favorite topic of ours, but a donor advised fund being a giving account that allows you to essentially recommend where those grants go in the future, but you don't necessarily have to assign them all at once. Very common that we use these for people that have super big tax events, selling a company, selling a major uh, piece of real estate, something along those lines that has a really big gain associated with it. You can use a donor advised fund to offset that type of a gain, but it's also a good option just for your regular annual giving if you're not quite ready to choose those charities, if you've got other research you want to do on where the funds ultimately go. The last thing I had on my year-end checklist was more so um, personal finance related, uh, financial planning. 
And that is tracking your progress year by year. Uh, we've talked about this in, in the past. Ross and I are not big, like zero sum budgeters or anything like that. But I do think it's important to know where you've been and where you're going. So even if you do this once a year or quarterly, is just set up a worksheet for yourself to track your balances and make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Uh, over time, if you do this, you can get a really nice snapshot of how you've been progressing and, and make sure you're meeting those goals over the long term. I would add to that, Dan, that especially in a year like this where your balances, quite frankly, are possibly down or probably down because major market indices are still negative for the year at this point, unless some crazy rally happens between us recording this and when it airs. Please do. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. I, I welcome that type of being wrong on this show. Uh, I'll even punch in a new ending to the show without Dan here just to just to celebrate. Um, but if that's the case, I think evaluating what you did, your activity, not necessarily just the change in balance, but what was your savings rate? How much did you put away in terms of fresh dry powder, whether that's into long-term savings, whether that's into a brokerage account or a 401k? What did you actually contribute to your long-term goals, because that's what you should be focused on is the things that you can control. We don't get to control the stock market. If we did, I'd have a much nicer view than the one I've got right now, right? You don't get to control that stuff. What you get to control is your activity. So focus on that, the things that you can control in your personal financial journey. Did you do the things you needed to do to meet your goals? And most of your account statements year-end will have a nice view that summarizes your contributions for you. So hopefully it's not very hard, especially you know if you're throwing money in here and there versus a recurring savings plan. You could just take your year-end statement and look at the additions number and just pull it right from there. Um, cash balances and credit card balances, I think point-to-point -point is good. Uh, it's always nice to see even just regular loans being paid down and owing less money on those for a net worth statement. Um, you know, any place you can give yourself some feel goods, I'm all for it. But it's also important to to be aware if you're going in the wrong direction and uh, make adjustments. I think that that's true. Let me ask you this, Dan: Do you spend any time with the year end credit card statements when they send like the annual report, which is like it's like the Spotify wrapped summary for for your spending on on the year, right? Like I I don't know about you, but I actually look through those. No, there are times where I just absolutely groan at something I spent money on. I think that's actually a decent time just to be reflective of like, does that purchase still spark joy? To give you like a Marie Kondo phrase, but yeah, uh, that's always a fun experience for me, and and also sometimes a painful one. I usually just see the graph and go oh, and scroll down. Like, I don't want to see that again. I mean, for people that are like me and, and have trouble budgeting and, and struggle with it, that's a very valuable piece of feedback to understand what did I actually spend my money on. That's a really good tool. It doesn't encompass everything, obviously, if you've got regular bills or bill pay coming out of your bank accounts. But uh, for somebody that does most of their spending on a credit card, you get a really nice look at where did it actually go? And they're really good at categorizing too. Every year, that process is getting better and more detailed. D did you do your Spotify wrapped? Did you uh, pull up your top five? I did. Uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, so I, I will not share that. But uh, yeah, no, it's Spotify wrapped is really funny because it depends who you were listening with and how the music was being played. I don't feel like it was perfectly reflective of like what I listened to personally. Um, 
it did have like some podcasts, even though I'm normally a Google podcast guy, but I guess sometimes I've pulled up either our show or others on, on Spotify. Um, so yeah, it gave me kind of a funny little bit of a disjointed summary just because of how, how I was using it. My number two artist was Jimmy Buffett, which made me laugh really hard. Cause obviously I was listening to a lot as I practiced my songs for the band, but, uh, I sent it to the band. I was like, look at what you did to me. You the got fact Jimmy that Buffett. you're in a Jimmy Buffett cover band and don't enjoy his music is like my favorite thing. I find it amusing too. It's funny. Well, we hope that this is helpful to anybody out there thinking about what they've done this past year financially, what's coming in the next year financially. If you've got questions for our show, things that you've done, what did we miss? We'd love to hear from you. Check your balances at Outlook.com. I'm also going to give a quick plug for the Keyed In podcast, who are gracious enough to have both Ross and myself on uh, that episode as we're talking today, aired this week. Feel welcome to go check it out. It's really interesting, and uh, they get people from all aspects of the real estate world on there. Uh, Highly recommend it, and we look forward to hopefully having a chance to chat with them here. Sounds great. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We will catch you next week. (laughs) 